Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1? Let me just say that uh, so far in our study of Romans, we have finished Paul's opening salutation and his personal introduction of himself and his ministry. Remember now, he had never been to Rome, so he had to kind of introduce himself, um, give a little background about himself, and that covered verses 1 to 15. And that brought us to verses 16 and 17, which, as we have said, set forth the theme and thesis of the epistle. Let's read them. For Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now, Paul moves from verses 16 and 17 right into verse 18, which contrasts the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith with the wrath of God revealed from heaven. It also contrasts two groups of people, the just who embrace the truth and live by faith with the ungodly who suppress the truth and live unrighteously. Now, guys, this begins the main body of the epistle, which runs from, from verse 18 of chapter 1 through verse 13 of chapter 15. This first section, though, runs from chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. And it falls under the heading of condemnation or judgment. Because in it, Paul wants to prove that the whole world apart from Christ is condemned by God, which is why this section now, begins with the words, for the wrath of God. And then Paul goes on. Why is it important, why is it so important that Paul begins the main body of this epistle by proving that the whole world apart from Jesus is condemned? Well, it's important because before people will see their need for a Savior, they must first be made to see themselves as sinners. And so now we enter into, as the great pastor and teacher Donald Gray Barnhouse put it, the opening arguments of the prosecution in the case against unredeemed mankind. So verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Let me stop there. I know why Paul began this section with the phrase, the wrath of God. We just talked about that. But it's still interesting to me. It's still interesting to me that Paul begins his presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the theme of Romans, by talking about the wrath of God or the judgment of God. It's interesting because that is the opposite that is opposite of the way that most pastors, preachers, and Christians in general begin their presentation of the gospel message. In most of the contemporary presentations of the gospel, you know, people try to purposely avoid any talk of God's wrath or judgment and hell as being too negative. But instead, modern, instead, modern Christianity tells us that people will be one to Christ if we focus on their felt needs. Tell them how much God loves them. Tell them what a wonderful plan he has for their life. 
Tell them that he wants them to have an abundant life full of blessings and joy and peace. He wants them happy. That's what you got to focus on when you share the gospel. And then to, quote, unquote, close the deal, we promise them that all these things can be theirs if they simply receive Jesus. I can almost hear it. This is what Jesus can do for you. What do you say? Of course, this turns us into salesmen for Jesus. Seeking to sell them the gospel as some kind of a miracle cure for all the ails of all the um, whatever ails them in life. Instead of what we really are supposed to be, and that is, I guess, firemen for Jesus. Seeking to rescue people from the fires of hell. You know, in modern evangelism, guys, people seldom talk about judgment and the wrath of God, unlike You know, the old-time preachers, guys like Jonathan Edwards, who said in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How would you like to see that in a marquee of a church you drive by? (laughs) And come back on Sunday when that service is going to be held and it's probably going to be plenty of parking. Because that just is not, you know, sinners in that. This Sunday, the message, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Oh, yeah, I'll be sure to catch that. Um. But here's what he said. I'm paraphrasing. Sinners are, sinners are walking on an icy plank over the pit of hell, and at any time their foot can slip, causing them to fall headlong into everlasting destruction. Wow. That's just too negative for today. I think m- many Christian leaders see themselves as having evolved beyond this kind of thing. They're so smart. They, they, they've got it figured out. That was just way too negative, okay? And even though some people got saved, they didn't know any better. Uh, they were too stupid, too unsophisticated to really know what the church needs to be preaching in the way of, of edifying messages. And so, you know, you, it, you can't have that kind of preaching. It's too negative. We have to keep it positive and uplifting or we'll never, you know, sell them on Jesus. We'll never close the deal. And so they tell us that we have to focus on the love of God when we evangelize the lost. And I'm not against focusing, I'm not against talking about the love of God. But that has become the basis for most modern evangelism, the love of God. Not realizing that nowhere in the book of Acts did any of the apostles ever use the love of God as a basis for preaching the gospel. You realize that? They never used the love of God. Not that it's wrong to work that in there. But if you study the sermons, the preaching in the book of Acts, Peter, Paul, and so on, they never used God's love as a basis for sharing the gospel. Rather, their gospel message was essentially Flee coming judgment by coming to Jesus for salvation and safety. Something bad's coming. See, folks, let me just say this. The gospel is supposed to be a, uh, a warning siren, if I could put it that way. Think of, our, of a tornado siren. We live in the Midwest, and so, you know, all of our towns around here have these tornado sirens standing by. And, you know, if you've ever been home maybe 3 o'clock in the morning, and one of these things goes off. They're quite loud. And what are they designed to do? Make you feel good, comfortable. Oh, the siren's going. 
I love it when the siren comes on. No, it's not supposed to make you feel good and warm and fuzzy. It's supposed to say, get out of bed, run for your life, find cover, something bad's coming. That's what the gospel was originally intended to be. Not happy talk to make everybody feel good about themselves. It was supposed to be a warning siren. Quickly, take shelter in Christ. Something bad is coming. It's called judgment. And if you don't take shelter in Jesus, it's not going to be good for you. It's not going to go well. You know, I think in some ways, and I don't mean to belabor this, but I think in some ways, Dale Carnegie okay, has even influenced our gospel presentation more in some churches than Jesus Christ. We seem to be, or they seem to be trying very hard to, you know, win friends and influence people. Instead of being faithful to the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is offensive to many. Now, we are not supposed to be offensive personally. We're supposed to be loving and kind and present the gospel and the love of God with, you know, kindly and, and the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle, patient, able to teach in humility, correcting those in opposition, lest perhaps God grant them repentance and they escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. That's our part. But the gospel message itself is offensive. It tells people that you are a sinner. God loves you not because of you, but in spite of you and me. Right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the what? Wonderful, kind, sweet, gentle person like me. God's so blessed to have me on his team. He had to save me. Come on, look at me. Everyone loves me. Especially the person you look at in the mirror, right? Um, some churches won't even sing Amazing Grace anymore. It's just too negative. I'm not kidding you. It's just too negative. To save the wretch like me, we're not wretches. We're this and that. We're wonderful people. The gospel is offensive. It was never intended to make people feel good about themselves. Years ago, I heard Ray, evangelist Ray, Ray Comfort um, use a powerful illustration of this. I hope I don't mess it up. But I thought it was incredible. He said, look, imagine you have um, boarded uh, a, an airliner and it's taken off and you're on your way somewhere. When, when all of a sudden the flight attendant uh, comes through the cabin passing out parachute packs and he or she tells you, look, take one of these. It'll make your journey, your ride, so much more pleasant. You thought, well, I want my ride to be pleasant. I want my journey to be pleasant. Sure, I'll take one. You strap the thing on, and you're sitting there with this big pack on your back, and no, it's not comfortable. It's not making the trip nicer. And as you look around the cabin, people that refuse it are pointing at you and laughing. What an idiot. Look at it. So you finally take the thing off, throw it on the ground, and curse the flight attendant that lied to you about how wonderful it's going to make your life if you put the thing on. Now imagine a different scenario. Say the plane takes off, and after about an hour, you start to hear some funny noises coming from the plane. It's not steady anymore. In fact, it's starting to rock. 
And now all of a sudden the flight attendant appears in the cab and carried a bunch of parachute packs and says, look, we're having some catastrophic failure in the plane. Uh, we may have to bail on this plane. It's probably going down. Here is life uh, parachute packs for everybody who wants one. Well, who wouldn't want one? <laughs> now you're grabbing that thing and strapping it on because it means it's going to save your life. See, folks, that's the gospel. The gospel has been presented for so many years as, you know, a wonderful way to have a happier life. You know, that your life is going to be so much better when you come to Jesus. And so on. Then what it really is, is a parachute. This world is going down. And Jesus is our parachute. As long as we're in him, He's going to get us to safety. It, it's just amazing, though, to, to you know, see what has happened uh, to the gospel. That, that's why I want to spend a little extra time just on this intro verse of this new section. But, but it's interesting to me, guys, that, and I don't want you to ever think I'm telling you to, to talk to somebody when you witness to them about God's love is wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the gospel has been reduced to happy talk today. Instead of as a warning to flee the wrath that's coming, get in Jesus. Come on to Jesus. Because something bad's coming, and he's the only one that can save you. It's interesting to me that from Paul's perspective, fear, fear becomes the first pressure he applies to those living godly lives. He doesn't talk about God's love to launch out into this uh, epistle, of uh, the theme of which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The first thing he talks about is fear. Very much like Jude said, right? In, in Jude, little book, one chapter, he said, you know, on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with what? Fear. You say, well, that's not right. I don't, want to, I don't want people to be afraid and come to Jesus. Why? Seriously, what? I don't care what brings a person to Jesus, as long as they come to Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a, some transparency. I wasn't saved. I wasn't saved back then. I was 18. And me and a buddy went to see the movie The Exorcist. Oh, my goodness. That was horrifying. Oh, my gosh. And I remember, and I, was, I wasn't a Christian back then, but I, I loved the Lord. I, I was never an atheist, okay? I remember coming home, sitting on the edge of my bed with my, with my head in my hands, weeping. God, I don't want to go to hell. Please don't let me go to hell. Crying over and over again. I think I got scared into heaven. It's okay. It worked out all right. Because, you know, after the fear subsides and you're saved, perfect love does what? Cast out fear. So I don't walk around anymore terrified, you know. I, I'm in Jesus. I have complete peace, right? But it doesn't matter what... Some people, they're, they're, they're so, such an emotional wreck. They, they know they're sinners, they're always putting themselves down. You don't need to put fear on them. What they need is come around, put your arm around their shoulder. God loves you. Sure, you're imperfect. But, but I am too. 
Some, he said, have compassion, okay? Others, proud, a little arrogant, do what you got to do. <laughs> Hold their feet over the fire until they scream. Whatever it takes. But guys, let me say this. I could make a much stronger case from the New Testament that fear, coming judgment, is more of a basis when we share the gospel than the love of God is. Not that sharing God's love is a bad thing. I love it. But it is the fear of coming judgment that is really the motivation, I think, for embracing the gospel. Guys, the gospel is God's message, message of hope to encourage sinners to come to Jesus that he might rescue them from hell. And as we have said before, let me say it again, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone in the Bible. He talked about it more than he even talked about heaven or love. Why did he talk about hell so much? Because he didn't want anyone to go there. And yet today, almost all evangelism is based on the love of God. And we hear very little based on coming judgment. Again, I think people think it's just too negative. They're just, it's just too negative. You know, Jesus was the first hellfire and damnation preacher of the New Covenant. So what about John the Baptist? He appears in the New Testament, but he really was the last prophet of the Old. Jesus said the law and the prophets were until up, up until and including John. And that's why John said, he must increase, I must decrease. He was handing off the baton, if you will, the old covenant, passing the baton to Jesus, who started the new covenant. Jesus uh, was the first damn, hellfire and damnation preacher of the new covenant. And yet, that is not how his church has come to present the gospel as they evangelize the lost. Years ago, I read uh, uh, Pastor John MacArthur's book, The Gospel According to Jesus. Let me just give you a, a, just a, a short uh, portion of it. Because Pastor MacArthur had this to say on this subject. He said, and I quote, Our modern ideas of evangelism err in some key points of the gospel as presented by Jesus. Modern evangelism is preoccupied with decisions and statistics and aisle-walking and gimmicks, prefab presentation, pitches, emotional manipulation, and even intimidation. It's a simplistic message of shallow faith and based on cheap grace. Unbelievers are told that if they invite Jesus into their hearts, accept him as their personal savior, or believe the facts of the gospel, that's all there is to it. But the aftermath has been tragic. Multitudes of people who have professed faith in Christ with no real change in lifestyle or submission to Christ, that's what characterizes them, nothing is changing, yet they profess faith in Christ and consider themselves Christians now. He said, who knows how many people have been deluded into believing they're saved when they are not, end quote. Another pastor put it this way, and I quote, Much of contemporary evangelism is woefully deficient in confronting people with the reality of their sin. Preachers offer happiness, joy, fulfillment, and anything else that is positive to try to get people to come to Christ. Most of our witnessing centers on a person's emotional or psychological needs and then offers Jesus as a quick cure for the problems of life. That's why churches are full of people whose lives are basically unchanged. 
They have been told that coming to Jesus would in some way meet their needs, take care of their problems, bring them happiness. And don't get me wrong, that's true, but only if they're willing to abandon the self-life, receive Jesus as Savior, take up their cross, and become a servant of Christ, end quote. Again, guys, we need to change our presentation of the gospel so that we don't become salesmen for Jesus, packaging and presenting the gospel as a miracle cure for all the aches and pains of life without dealing with the core issues of sin and surrender. Years ago, we had the famous Argentinian evangelist Luis Palau come out to the Chicagoland area to do a series of crusades. Luis is with the Lord now. He was a good man. And so, you know, the advance team came out, and for a year uh, they were training people. Now, pastors were, uh, if you wanted to be a part of it, what, hap what happened is we were given little badges, and, uh, and we were sitting in the, uh, wherever it was, uh, the venue, and then when uh, Luis gave the invitation and people came down onto the main floor of the, of the venue, then the pastors would come down and, 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 and talk with people that wanted to receive Christ and pray with them and so on, right? So I had been teaching a series uh, along the lines of what we're talking about, you know, not wanting anyone to think they're saved if they really weren't. So I wanted to probe a little bit. And so this young woman came down, maybe 20, and she said, I want to I said, why are you here? What do you, what, why did you come forward? Well, I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. Okay. I said, that's wonderful. Can I ask you a few questions? Sh sure. Um, do you understand what it means when you accept Jesus as your Savior? Well, what do you mean? I said, well, I mean, you realize that you're, you're giving up control of your life to Him. He's going to be the master. You're going to be the servant. I mean, He's going to now control your life. Your life is no, no longer going to be your own. You've been bought with a price. Now you are to glorify God in your, with your body, your whole life, and so on. I said, are you ready to do that? And she stared at me for a few seconds and said, no, I'm, I'm not ready to do that. I'm not ready to give Jesus control of my life. Now, I didn't say this to her. I said, thank you for your honesty. But I'm thinking, well, you're certainly not ready to receive him as your Savior then. And I prayed with her and asked God to help her to come to a place of surrender. When I shared that story several years, well, I was going back more than the several years, we had a lady in the church that became very offended because I was, in her mind, te teaching salvation by works. And so her and her family left the church. This is the difference between head knowledge, superficial faith, and saving faith. Even the devil and his demons believe in Jesus Christ. They're not going to heaven. So it's got to be more than just simply believing in the facts of the gospel. Well, it's a commitment. You must believe. Saving faith is believing to the point of commitment. That's why it's called a marriage. That's why we are called the bride of Christ. And Jesus is our bridegroom. Because it implies a very deep relationship brought about by commitment when we accepted christ as our savior we made a commitment to him 
Without it, you have head knowledge, but you don't have saving faith. And this is what MacArthur and many others like him have been saying for years. And I wrote her a long email and I tried to explain where I was coming from. That just because you have you give mental assent to the facts of the gospel doesn't mean you're saved. Again, the devil and his demons believe they're not going to heaven. There has to be more to it than just saying, oh yeah, yeah, I, I, I believe in Jesus, always have. What do you believe about him? That's important. You get the facts right. He's God. Came down, became a man, died on the cross for our sins, three days later, rose from the dead bodily. These are important facts. But again, the devil was there to see all of this happening, and he's not going to heaven. Now, I realize that when you talk to people about God being a God of wrath, and I'm not saying that that should be the main focus of your talk to people. It should come in there if you're going to share the gospel. It should come in at some point. But I realize that when you talk to people about God being a God of wrath, some people get very upset by that because they either can't understand or refuse to accept the notion that the God of love they have come to believe in can at the same time be a God of wrath and judgment. People want to slice and dice God's nature and, and only take the parts of his nature they like, the love, the grace, the mercy. But God is who he is. He's also holy and righteous and just. We cannot divide God up. And a lot of people, they are comfortable with a God of love, but are absolutely terrified of a God who judges sin. And so a lot of them don't accept Christ at all. Or they come to believe in something that they think is accurate, but it's just the imagination of their own heart. Look, I came across this Lord Bertrand Russell in his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, expressed it this way, said, and I quote, There is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character. Chew on that for a second. Here's a guy so arrogant, he's going to sit in judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, here's, here's what I think. This is a big defect in Christ's moral character. Oh, wow. And that is that he believed in hell. I do not feel that any person who is really profoundly humane can believe in everlasting punishment. Christ certainly, as depicted in the Gospels, did believe in everlasting punishment. That's true. And one does find repeatedly a vindictive fury against those people who would not listen to his preaching. That's absolutely wrong. That's false. All right? He said... You do not, for instance, find that attitude in Socrates. You find him quite bland and urbane toward the people who would not listen to him. And as it is, to my mind, far more worthy of a sage to take that line of thinking than to take the line of indignation, judgment, like Christ taught. Oh, okay. Folks, what's on display here is the so-called wisdom of the world, which James tells us does not come from God, but rather is earthly, sensual, and demonic. 
Russell is reasoning from the natural unsaved mind, or as the Bible calls it, the reprobate mind. And to the reprobate mind, the wrath of God or God's judgment on sin, is always, it always seems uncouth and repulsive to the ultra-refined, to the intellectuals. Everything has to be neat and, you know, and, and couth and, uh, you know, that kind of thing, right? And you know where they find the greatest fault? Jesus hanging on that cross. That sends them into an orbit. You have people have written whole books on this is ridiculous. You Christians, this is a bloody religion. This is no place in civilized society. This barbaric concept that Jesus was beaten and hung on a cross and you know before that whipped and so on to pay for our sins. Why was he punished for me? That doesn't even make sense. Well, it does if you know what the Bible teaches. He was our substitute. Penal substitution, the basis for the gospel. Another was punished in our place. We owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. That's the gospel, folks. I mean, all that statements like this prove is that the people who make them really don't know God and certainly don't understand the nature of a holy and righteous God. They're just showing their own ignorance, right? It's like if somebody stood, where is the Mona Lisa? In the, in the Louvre in Paris? It's like somebody standing in front of the Mona Lisa. I don't think it's so great. <laughs> Guess what? That's a masterpiece. You're a dummy. That doesn't diminish the Mona Lisa. It just proves you're a stupid art critic. You're a, you, you have no clue. When people look at the gospel, this masterpiece that God has brought to us as human beings, and they stand back in their arrogance and go, ah, I don't like it. It's stupid. What would you like? I, I, I like Buddhism. Well, have at it. Enjoy yourself. Okay? Um, but listen, the idea that coming from Christian leaders today, well, okay, look, we're in the last days. Evil men will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Into the church will come many false prophets. Jesus said it would escalate the closer we got to his return, right? So when I say Christian leaders, we don't even know if all of them are really Christians. But let's just say that there are those that are, and they have this idea that we should not use God's wrath, you know, hell, as a motivation for people to get saved when we share the gospel because it's too negative. Well, well that's absurd. Again, Jesus talked about hell more than anybody, and he's my example. I mean, I'm going to follow Jesus before I follow any human being. And if Jesus made this the hallmark of his gospel presentation then it's good enough for me although jesus did talk about god's love he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son it wasn't that jesus preaching was devoid of god's love altogether but he talked about hell and coming judgment more than anybody else because he wanted people to be saved from it again god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that Whoever believes in him, what? Shall not 
perish in hell, but have everlasting life. You see how you can take the love of God and weave into it, run for your lives, okay? But this idea that, you know, these, we got, we have leaders in the church, God bless them, they got more letters after their names, I don't know what these letters, I was reading one guy just the other day, and he had like 18 letters after his name. I, I had no idea what they even meant, okay? I, just, I realized he's probably smart. Probably a smart guy, right? Um, but when I see these people, and they are coming against the foundational truths of the, of, of the Christian faith when it comes to the gospel. I just shake my head. I'm glad I'm not that smart. If being smart, super intelligent, means you deny the basic principles of the gospel and the Christian faith, I'm glad that I'm more like a child then. Because I just read my Bible and believe it. I, you know, that, that's just me. And I know it's you guys. But, but let me tell you this. You can't talk about judgment and vengeance. It's just too old-fashioned, archaic, it's frightening to people. This is not how we do it today. Let me challenge you to find um, find a, a hymnal, an old hymnal from at least 75, probably more like 100 years earlier, you know, and earlier than that. I mean, something that's, uh, that's at least 100 years old, a hymnal that was used in church services. Um, and look at it carefully. You will find him after him on the wrath of God, on the vengeance of God, on the judgment of God, hymns that are very much like the imprecatory psalms in the book of Psalms, which, by the way, was the hymnal of Israel they used in, the temple, in their temple for the worship of God. What is an imprecatory psalm? You've never heard that phrase let me read to you how one author, Christian author, defines uh, psalms of imprecation. And I thought this was important. I'll tell you why as we, as we read it afterward. He said, An imprecation is a curse that invokes misfortune upon someone. Imprecatory psalms are those in which the author uh, imprecates. That is, he calls down calamity, destruction, and God's anger... Uh, and judgment on his enemies. This type of psalm is found throughout the book of Psalms. Uh, the major imprecatory psalms are Psalms 5, 10, 17, 35, 58. This is going to be on the test. <laughs> 58, 59, 69, 70, 79, 83, 109, 129, 137, and 140. There's a few of them, isn't there? That's the point I'm making. Yeah, if you read the imprecatory psalms, God, you know, smash their nose, bust their teeth. You know, that, you know, that kind of, get them, God, all right? Now, now, the author balances this. He says, when studying the imprecatory psalms, it is important to note that these psalms were not written out of vindictiveness or out of a need for personal vengeance. Instead, they are prayers that keep God's justice, sovereignty, and protection in mind. While Jesus himself quoted some imprecatory psalms, John chapter 2, verse 17, and John 15, verse 25, 
He also instructed us to love our enemies and to pray for them. The New Testament makes it clear that our enemy, our true enemy, is spiritual, uh, not physical. Well, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. You, you guys know that, of course. It is not sinful to pray the imprecatory psalms against our spiritual enemies. But we should also pray with compassion and love for people who are under the devil's influence, those who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. We shouldn't uh, look down on them or get upset with them. They have been captured by the devil. They are not our enemies. We are to pray for them. We are to love them. We should desire their salvation, the author says. After all, God is patient, not willing that anyone should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. Above all things, he says, we should seek the will of God in everything we do. And when we are wronged, leave the ultimate outcome to the Lord. Romans 12, verse 19, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy thirsts, give him something to drink. If he hungers, give him something to eat. Because this is how I want you to treat your enemies. And if they need judgment, if they refuse to come to my son, I will take care of that. That's not up to you. You love them. And if they refuse to come to my son, I'll judge them. But I don't want you getting involved in judgment, retaliation, and so on. Listen, guys, most uh, Christian poets and songwriters don't write many, if any, imprecatory poems and songs today. And that may or may not be a good thing. I'll let you decide for yourselves. I personally gravitate uh, to and connect with Christian songs that extol the love and grace of God. That, that's where I'm coming from. Um, after all, we are living in the New Covenant period, aren't we? The age of grace. Remember how John opened his gospel? John 1.17 For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Law carries with it consequences. If you violate the law, you have to pay the price. You have to pay the consequences. Grace says you get what you don't deserve. You realize mercy and grace, they sound kind of the same. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy, I deserve hell. But by God's mercy, because I'm in Christ, I don't get hell. I don't deserve heaven. But by God's grace, because I'm in Christ, I get it as a free gift. This is a whole different covenant. This is a whole different era in the church's history, one that we are a part of. Um, here's our marching orders, and it stays this way until Jesus changes it. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. Because I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. I came into the world that the world through me might be saved. He who believes is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he refuses to believe or she refuses to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ. So we are to love our enemies. We're not to condemn sinners. Jesus didn't. Who are we to condemn them? We're to love them, pray for them, try to reach them. But I think this, guys. I think it's important that we read imprecatory psalms. I think it's important that we read these psalms as a regular part of our devotional lives for this main reason. We will never be able to grasp 
the depth of God's love for fallen sinners until we understand how deeply he hates sin. And that's why Paul, in presenting an epistle that has as its theme the gospel of Jesus Christ, doesn't even bring up God's love, listen, until chapter 5. Until chapter 5. The love of God is a beautiful and blessed thing. But again, you'll never appreciate how great his love is toward fallen sinners like you and me until you appreciate how great his hatred is toward sin. Once you begin to comprehend how much God hates sin and hates it utterly and profoundly, not just a little bit. Yeah, God doesn't like sin. A little bit, right? He loves me. I'm cute, cuddly. Who wouldn't love me? It's amazing that our society has warped people's thinking. We're living in an anti-Christian or a post-Christian era. If, if you haven't figured that out, take a little time to think about it. The culture is becoming more and more dark because we are turning our back or have turned our back more and more on God. And you don't just turn away from something without turning towards something else. And so I just read a few days ago that the fastest growing religion among young people is Satanism. I just talked to a young lady that goes to our church. Uh, her and her mom came to our small group. She'd never been there before, but she wanted to tag along. And so I asked her about her friends. Because we were talking about how that when we go out, we try to explain to people that hell is real. And, you know, if you're a sinner, you're going to hell. And we use the right comfort approach. Hey, walk up to a group of people. Done this many times. Uh, hey, we're from a church in the area. We're out talking to people about God. Can we ask you a few questions? And they start laughing. Oh, okay, yeah, fine. You know, young people, right? Who are these idiots? Who are these goofballs? You know, okay, I'll placate them. Um, if you were to die tonight, and you stood before God and he said, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you tell him? I'd tell him I'm a good person. That's why you should let me in. Okay, can we explore that a little bit? Okay, sure. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah, who hasn't? Um, have you ever stolen anything? I've never stolen anything. It's amazing how many people have said that. Not even a stick of gum when you were like eight? Well, yeah, okay, what does that make you? It makes me a thief. First makes you a liar, secondly it makes you a thief. Have you ever lusted after somebody in your heart? Well, sure, who hasn't? Well, Jesus said in the eyes of God, you've committed adultery. So as, as you go down this, you say, well, okay. Um, so when you stand before God and this is all exposed, do you think he's going to say you're a good person or a guilty person? Well, I think you probably have to say I'm a guilty person. Okay. Do you think he lets you into heaven or have to send you to hell? I, I guess he'd have to send me to hell. Does that bother you? Well, yeah. Well, I've got good news. And that's how we present it, right? So I was talking to this young lady, and I, because I, we were talking on these lines, and she said, you know, that wouldn't work with my friends. So why not? Because they know they're sinners, and they're excited about going to hell. What? What do you mean they're excited? Oh, yeah, they believe that hell is a big party. All their friends are going to be in hell. No, the devil is cool. Christianity is 
corny, a bunch of hypocrites. We got to pray. The devil has twisted the thinking of this generation. Good is bad. Oh, I seem to remember Isaiah saying that right before God's judgment would fall on a nation, they would begin to call good evil and evil good. When I saw the riot last weekend in Chicago, that was a free-for-all, right? All these young people, young faces. I'm like, Lord, these kids are so lost. They need you. We, Lord, burden us to pray because there's no way we can reach them. You've got to touch their hearts. You've got to open their eyes. We're seeing exactly what Jesus said. Again, that, you know, I forget it was Jesus or Paul who said this, but the closer we get to Christ's return, the more uh, people, evil people will grow worse and worse. Jesus said the love of many will grow cold. Some poor woman was standing there and a crowd gathered around her and started beating her to death. She survived. Just doing nothing. She's minding her own business. Let me say this and we'll close. We'll have to pick it up next week. Again, you're never going to appreciate how great God's love is toward fallen sinners until you appreciate how great his hatred is toward sin. And once you begin to comprehend how much God hates sin and hates it so profoundly, only then will you begin to comprehend God's amazing love for you as a sinner. That's what Paul's doing. If you've ever bought a diamond, guys, if you ever... Uh, wanted to buy a diamond for your fiancé or your wife for a special occasion. You know how it goes. Go to a jewelry store, and you say, I want to buy a diamond for my wife, you know, and so on. And uh, what does he or she do? What does the jeweler do? Takes out a piece of black velvet, puts it on the counter, and then begins to take out one diamond at a time. Why? For contrast. Against the blackness of the velvet, the diamond becomes more radiant. As long as you think you're a pretty good person, not perfect, but pretty good, I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. The gospel will never pop. It'll never shine. There will always be a worthless bobble in your mind. It's only when you realize how much of a sinner you are and how much God hates sin but loves you and gave his son to die for you and is holding his arms open to you saying, come to me. I want to save you from what's coming. I've got to judge this world. It's full of sin and wickedness and rebellion. I have to judge it or I wouldn't be a right, the righteous judge of all the earth. But I don't want to judge you. I want you to come to me so that I can save you from this. That's the gospel. And until you see it against the blackness of our sin, it will never become radiant and precious and beautiful in your, in your mind. So may God give us grace. We'll leave it there, pick it up next week, God willing, as we progress now into the main part of this incredible epistle. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your grace, your great love wherewith you loved us, saved us, reached out to us. Lord, we praise you. That you're a God of love and mercy and grace. But we also understand you're a God of righteousness and justice and holiness. You have to punish sin. But you loved us so much you didn't want to punish us. You came down, Lord Jesus. 
You became a man. You suffered in our place. You took our death. And you rose from the dead that we might have eternal life. We thank you. We praise you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.